Hello and welcome to the first Institute for Pentecostal Theology podcast of 2021. This month we thought we would do something a little bit different and we are going to take you to a, a live session we recorded a few weeks ago with David Bennett. Uh, David Bennett is completing his PhD at the University of Oxford and he's the author of A War of Loves. And we invited David a few weeks ago uh, to sit down and have a chat with Simo and I and with the wider community at Regents uh, over Zoom, obviously, as uh, we're in lockdown. Um, uh, but we thought that we would invite you into the conversation that we had with David. So this podcast will sound a little bit different from the previous podcasts. Uh, but sit back and welcome to a Wednesday afternoon devotions. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to our Wednesday devotions, uh, and a particular welcome to David. Hello. Those of you who don't know David, David is a is a Christian. He is an evangelist, a theologian, and the author of the acclaimed War of Loves, the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering Jesus. And David, it's great to have you with us today. For those of you doing the Christian ethics module, David would have been lecturing you this morning if you were there. Hopefully you were <laughs> there, uh, a module that Dr. Jonathan Black leads. And this afternoon, we have the opportunity to have a conversation with David, and uh, I very much look forward to that. As already mentioned uh, previously, what will happen this afternoon is that Jonathan and I will just ask David a few questions in a kind of an interview conversational format. And then after that, we will open the virtual floor for, for everyone to um, ask questions. So please think of any questions you may want to ask David. Indeed, some of you may have read the book War of Loves. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. So again, David, welcome. And just to start us off, how did you become a follower of Christ? <laughs> Thank you so much, Simo and um, to Jonathan Black too, for having me and everyone on the team. Uh, yeah, so I became a Christian in kind of very unlikely circumstances. Uh, and I often say I was looking for love, but definitely not for God. <laughs> and um, I think as we all are, you know, when we're confronted with being just a human, the mystery of life, it seems always to point back to that. But I, you know, I definitely was alienated by the church. I definitely, you know, hated the Bible and, you know, was involved in kind of new age religions and Buddhism I was a Wiccan witch I was a reformed Jew for a week you know <laughs> a lot of spiritual fads along the way to my eventual atheism um that didn't last long either uh, obviously um and I think that was one of the really funny things that when I became a Christian all my friends were like oh this is just another obsession that David has it won't last very long and all my friends from university say well this one did last you know <laughs> uh, uh, but really I think you know, it was, I was involved in gay activism, came from an agnostic atheist home, went to a Christian school, went, came out as 14, at 14 at the school and was the first person ever to come out at, the, at a Christian school, that particular school at that time. And, you know, before woke was woke, I suppose I was like first wave before woke hit and had a lot of the questions in woke culture that now are like very mainstream and you hear them all over social media and everyone's changing their Twitter profiles to reflect them. Uh, <laughs> but um, I suppose, yeah, I had a little bit of a head start on that in mm -hmm. at those 
at that very young age of 14. So I have an interesting perspective because I've been on both the, um, on, on every end of this question, I've kind of been there. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's the atheist secularist, whether it's the kind of spiritualist that knows there's more, whether it's now as a Christian, you know, being pro-gay marriage as a Christian, and then now thinking actually marriage is between a man and woman within the church and that I'm not called to that. So I, I've kind of got that vast experience, but I did meet God in a pub when a girl prayed for me eventually and had a radical kind of Pentecostal style conversion experience where I woke up in my bed speaking in tongues uh, and there was a prophecy about my salvation and you can read all that good stuff in the book. It's uh-huh. a pretty remarkable journey really and like um, 180 degree You have to turn around uh, from where I was, you know, as a young 19 year old in Sydney. So mm. that's a very quick way of saying that's how I became yeah. a, a follow-up <laughs> question from that, if I may. Obviously said, you know, you, you tried a lot of things before you, you found Christ or Christ found you. What do you think was it about Christianity or this encounter with God or encounter with, with love, I suppose, that has kept you going? Why, why was it not just another fad? I think that's a great question. I think the first part of it, at least at the beginning, was that it was real. Mm-hmm. A lot of these other kind of spiritual paths, you kind of like fabricate a religious experience and you kind of live in it and try to kind of inhabit it and use it as a way of making meaning. Whereas for me, what just was, Jesus is real. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like that simple was, I was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was real. And that like, changed everything and I remember thinking that when I got was born again in the pub I was like oh my gosh this bible stuff is real um I mm-hmm. used ruder words than that but yeah uh <laughs> like you know it, it, it's it's first the reality of God I think and that you can experience and encounter and know God in real time mm-hmm. uh, it's not just a concept in your head God's real I think that was the first part but I'd say as I've gotten become a more mature Christian I would say that it's just that the gospel fits Mm-hmm. And that the gospel actually expra- explains my existence as a gay man better than any other worldview mm-hmm. I've found, um, which might seem surprising. <laughs> Sometimes I'm surprised, but it's true. It's like, you know, the secular culture doesn't really give a very good reason or explanation for existence. That, that mm-hmm. it's, the Christian worldview for me is the most compelling and leads to the deepest form of human flourishing and joy. And I think that's become more and more, um, yes, first that God's real, but secondarily, it actually does work. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that, that's great. And as well as being a, a follower of Christ, uh, you're a theologian. Obviously, you've, you've written a book. You're currently working on your doctoral dissertation at Oxford, I believe, in your final year. Um, how did you end up becoming an academic theologian? What led you to, you know, pursue a doctorate? Well, all the other theologians that I'd met on my journey said to me, You're, you have to be mildly crazy to be a theologian. <laughs> I was like, well, I fit that note. <laughs> uh, because you're not going to get paid well. And you know, <laughs> so, um, that's not the reason that I had a theologian. But it was just this you know, sense that I started to have apologetic questions about my faith. And I had all these other philosophical questions from my university years that weren't really brought together in any coherent way Mm -hmm. uh 
I came to Oxford to do a training course in Christian apologetics and also did a certificate degree as part of the university. And I just got a taste of theology. And I suppose the question for me of sexuality and human desire was so complex. And there was so much more that I felt I needed to discover that like theology just became very important to me, if mm. not like the most important thing next to kind of worshiping God, being a disciple, because I needed theology uh, mm. to do, to worship God well and to be effective disciple. And so I just got involved with theology and then it just was this endless itch that I couldn't quite scratch and it wouldn't leave me alone. And, um, you know, as I opened up more and more, you know, started reading Karl Barth, the reformers, patristics like everything just starts to expand and suddenly yes. like I think I want to be a theologian <laughs> so yeah. people it's like I've had enough you know I've done this bit and I'm ready to go do the other thing I've been called to do where I never had that moment it was always mm-hmm. keep going and the Holy Spirit just kept taking me down the path of, of academic theology and so yes. kept applying getting into things ended up with N.T. Wright in St. Andrews which was great and learned a lot about scripture from him and then really felt called to Christian ethics and like how does systematic theology apply to our lives mm-hmm. um and just yeah that's been where the calling of God seems to have, have developed and uh been doing slightly less apologetics and slightly more theology now so yeah I'm really enjoying it and mm-hmm. God opened up crazy doors along the way um mm-hmm. including getting into the doctorate at Oxford which I didn't expect and um just prepared it um, really it's you can think it's by your performance but really it's often just the grace of God puts you in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's been an amazing privilege David um, if um, you've often described yourself as a celibate gay Christian um so I just thought it might be quite helpful if you could explain what you mean by that for us yes yes so often like in the Christian conversation especially in the church there are people who are quite uh, nervous about the term gay often because they only understand it a very limited way and often it's also because they've had experiences that are quite negative with the gay community because of the history of the church and the gay community but I think it became really important to me at a certain stage to say no I'm actually gay and you know I found myself in Strasbourg France at a certain point when I was studying there I'd just freshly become a Christian and I was really wrestling with this and I was like god I don't even want to say I'm gay I don't even want to say I'm same-sex attracted I don't want to say anything I just want to be a Christian and all of that's in the past and it's my old self and that's not who I am anymore and thank you very much kind of thing and I thought that was Christian faithfulness uh, at that stage. And actually it was the Holy Spirit who pulled me out of that. And I was riding on my bike one day and he said, you keep saying this to me, David, that's not actually my will for your life. You're running away from what I want you to do, you know, what I've called you to do. And um, I ended up picking up this flyer uh, that had this incredible invitation on it um, to the Libre Clébert in the center of Strasbourg, France, which is, the main bookshop there and um, the last gay Holocaust survivor, uh, he was actually speaking at the bookstore. And I felt God weirdly like calling me to go to this and to listen to him. And I, I just felt compelled to go. And so I sat down and listened to his story and the horrors of the Holocaust that 
what the Holocaust had done to gay people and 250,000 gay people that were like um, killed in the Holocaust and just listen to this testimony. And I was just, the Holy Spirit was all over me the whole time and basically saying to me, I never want you to, to forget this. I'm not calling you to delete this aspect of your experience or who you are. This is important to me and I'm gonna use this and I want you to remember his story. So something of his story helped almost to make me more Christian <laughs> um, and actually to realize that like God had redeemed David Bennett, not deleted David Bennett. And um, I think that's the really important part of the gay element is it's not just about, you know, sex and sexual ethics. It's also about a whole story and a narrative and who you are and that God has a redemptive plan for that person, even if he calls you to live in obedience to the gospel. So I don't think everything about gay identity is incompatible with the gospel. And so I call myself a celibate gay Christian, but I was with Tim Keller the other day in Oxford of actually about two years ago. And I want to ask him as the Pope of Protestantism, <laughs> this kind of question. And I said, do, should Christians stop saying um, you're a Christian, so gay isn't your identity. Stop saying that that's your identity. Being Christian is your identity. And his response is they should absolutely stop saying that because a life of discipleship isn't about saying that's not part of your identity. It's about bringing that part of your identity under the Lordship of Christ and demoting it under the Lordship of Christ. And so I think the role of the Christian disciple is to take what they are and who they are now and to demote it under the Lordship of Christ and to go through the sanctification process uh, and then to be honest and real about who, the, who they are. And so for me, celibate gay Christian shows you that I've interpreted my, my personal sexuality in light of the gospel and I'm living in um, obedience to it, or at least aiming to, um, and, but by the grace of God. And I think one of the difficulties I have with the label is, uh, is actually that, you know, celibacy is understand, understood so poorly in our culture as a kind of form of self-repression. So I suppose I'm trying to also redeem that and bring that under the Lordship of Christ as well, not just the gay bit. Right. Um, you're making me feel really old now because I remember the days when John Stott was the Pope of Protestantism. <laughs> <laughs> now you're making me realize how old I am. <laughs> so sometimes just thinking about that language, about um, how we use language like that, um, uh, maybe it might be quite helpful to think about some terms that are used like side B and side A, that you sometimes use that language of being side B, other people would use the language as side A. So could you describe for us the difference between what those two labels are about? And, uh, and also maybe just a little bit about how in the church, how those two sides have or have not related to one another. Yes, so I think when I became a Christian and I was trying to work everything out um, with the Lord, I kind of entered into a whole conversation that was already happening in the US and I think when you enter a conversation you need to learn to use the terms and the the various language and not be so arrogant to think well I can just coin my own term <laughs> and like enter this scene and tell everyone else what they should say about themselves and so there were these kind of two terms that people would throw around side a and side b and at first I was kind of confused I 
side of a record or something they like, <laughs> understand what this language was but it was also quite fun because I could be around like all my heterosexual Christian friends and be like well I'm 5D and they'd be like I have no idea what that is I was like hey, you don't do you gotta go research that now like you know like, almost you know a bit of a party trick but it, it, it really it just it, these are just because gay people get Christians get so exhausted by describing things and trying to explain their position it just became a shorthand in kind of gay Christian circles, it's particularly in the US, although in, in the UK, it seems to have translated less, but I quite like it. I can just say, I'm, if I'm with a gay Christian, I say, well, I'm side B. And instantly, like, they know, oh, great. <laughs> like, they don't have to ask me, are you celibate? Are you married? Are you this? <laughs> you know, like, what's your ethic? And also, if someone's attracted to you, it can be really helpful. <laughs> like, well, I'm side B, you know? <laughs> Um, there's all sorts of usages of that language. It's just very practical to say side B, I don't think gay marriage is an option as a Christian and side A, I do. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the general definition. And so in my book, I have that. And there's also side X and side Y and side X is kind of like the ex gay movement. I don't really want to identify as gay. I've changed. I'm now married. And that's different to a gay person in a mixed orientation marriage so someone might be in a mixed orientation marriage a mom another <laughs> um you know term party trick term so you know there are many people who are for all intensive purposes attracted to the same sex but they um god has given them a special grace to be with someone of the opposite sex and that in marriage and that is not forced or coerced in any way it's just what god has done in their life and it god has given them them that special grace and i'd say that's about 15 percent of the side b community um most are celibate and a very small minority will believe in something called a celibate gay partnership which i personally don't agree with but i'm not going to like you know persecute someone who's in a celibate gay partnership i think there are situations people find themselves in where they have no support and they need someone to be with and look after them and whatever and they end up in a non-sexual partnership i I don't think that's a pastoral endpoint, but for people, but I think that's something we need to learn to, yeah, be careful with and love people in that process. And then there's, yeah, there's uh, side Y, which is just basically like side B, except you say, I never want to identify as gay. I disagree with LGBTQI plus um, language and I politically disagree completely with it. Um, so there's like a bit of distinction. Side X is X gay, side Y, I don't identify in any way, um, but I am same-sex attracted, which gets confusing because same-sex attracted kind of means gay, <laughs> but it's kind of, for some people, that's where their conscience is. And then side B, yeah, it's more about, there's a positive side to identifying as gay and not always a negative side to it, um, but agree with the traditional orthodox ethic. Mm. Very interesting, David, and thank you for unpacking some of the, some of the terminology for us. So in light of, um, obviously, you've identified the multidimensional nature of the different sides, if you like, um, where would you locate someone, um, which I think is an increasing voice, even within even evangelical circles of some who would say that marriage from a biblical perspective is between a male and female, between a man and a woman. However, because we live in a broken world, just like we have divorce and remarriage, and again, particularly if you take a kind of a more stricter view on that, you know, a biblical kind of an exegetical view regarding Jesus teaching on that, you know, um, divorce and remarriage is not ideal, but okay, we live in a broken world, we pastorally allow for that in the church. 
And in, same, in, in the same way, some would make the argument that, okay, just like we accept uh, people to get have a divorce and to get remarried and still to be a member of a church and perhaps even to be in Christian leadership, to be a pastor, in the same way we should allow gays who are married to, to also function in, in the same way. Would that be side A or would that be side B? Yeah, I think I would probably say that's a bit like um, a conservative version of like a lot of conservatives will have their version of that. I, I think it's too superficial mm-hmm. is actually my problem with it is that it kind of, you know, I was asking my Jewish friend the other day, like, how does Judaism deal with this? Because they don't have Jesus. They don't have all the cool suffering stuff. They've just like <laughs> got the law, you know, and he was like, well, you know, you just, he's from Philadelphia. So he's like, yeah, and you know, and you just kind of like squid your way in there and you just work away <laughs> around it. And it's, oh, it's all good. You know, we're Jewish. It's, uh, it's fine. You just come to your, you know, <laughs> he's kind of making all these exceptions about the law and I'm getting angry because I'm like, no, face the text and like, don't just like chide this off and say, this is like, we can just accommodate it. You know, I suppose to me in that perspective, there's just a, sm- a slight smugness or a like not taking this seriously enough. I suppose it's like we can just accommodate this it's fine I think sex is an incredibly important part of being a Christian the morality dwelling in the body like there's a seriousness to it that it just isn't like other issues like even women in leadership there's tons of scripture that talks about women doing all sorts of things that don't really fit with what was uh, expected of them within a Jewish context Mm -hmm. and kind of breaking that open culturally but everywhere in scripture the sexual ethic holds as you know this is a sacredly important thing it, it, it has to do with worship and body and gender and sex like all of that seems to have a greater significance than say what women's roles are how it's culturally mediated etc um in the church um and you know you have women uh, announcing the resurrection you have women doing things mm-hmm. deborah leading in the old testament Um, junior as an apostle potentially in romans there's biblical (laughs) substance to that but there isn't any biblical substance that you can point to for an ethic that says we can just incorporate this Mm -hmm. Um, i think i either see say for instance a liberal bible scholar saying the scriptures definitely say no homosexuality and that has to be you know how you see things scripturally i just disagree with scripture and i disagree with paul and so I'm going to live with a different church that doesn't see scripture as an ultimate authority. But then I think you lose the capacity to disciple because then scripture doesn't have that authority. And so you're not contradicted by scripture and given that important kind of accountability by the scriptures and you lose a whole lot in that. So I think that leads into a kind of fuzzy zone where everything starts to just dissipate. And I think when you look at divorce, for instance, closely, you know, Jonathan and I were just talking about this. You have, you know, the context of Himmel and Shammai and two schools of jurisprudence. And when you actually look at the context, Jesus isn't saying you can never be divorced. He's just saying that God hates divorce. It's not the ultimate intention. When Paul discusses homosexuality, that it's nothing like that. It's far more like this is a direct result of um, a broken worship system and something that touches both Gentile and Jew and that no one has the right to judge anyone, but it's, it, can, it can't be the norm for the church. So I think we come to a point where if we do that, we kind of undermine the gospel so drastically that um, 
I'm very worried about that kind of thinking. Whereas I find what I love in the side A, side B conversation is, yeah, we know we have to conclude. Yeah, we know this is important. And this isn't just something that we can just, you know, have like a kind of fluffy, fuzzy response to. This is something we really need to take seriously. And that's why I think the listening to the gay conversation is a better place than the kind of cosmopolitan theological lecturer who just feels like they want to be inclusive so they can get points in an academic career, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and I think that that stuff really trivializes. I think if I was in that position and I wasn't gay, I would say something like there are people who conclude differently. This is a very significant people, significant thing for people's lives. And there are side A, side B Christians and go listen to that conversation. So you get something better hosted in the gay community, the gay Christian community and the church responding that way and understanding it that way, rather than coming up with this kind of accommodation that trivializes the question. So, so obviously the, the, the broader conversation has been going on for decades, you might say for centuries. Um, in many ways, some might say it's been the kind of the defining issue of the church in the 21st century, particularly in the Western church. Uh, at least people looking from the outside in would often see that as the kind of the the, the main point of contention and discussion. In 2020, what would you see as some of the kind of current developments in the conversation or discussion points that students, theologians or pastors should be aware of and um, should familiarize this, themselves with? Yeah, I think what's really exciting is that there is a new tone in the conversation between gay Christians and there used to be quite a warring kind of uh, mentality between like side B and side A and everyone saying, well, you're on that side and like, I've given up this and you're just gonna go, go have a gay marriage now. Like, I don't wanna talk to you. <laughs> there was a lot of that kind of thing going on when I first came into the conversation. But I think now there's more of a understanding on both sides. Uh, people who say, yeah, well, I understand why someone would be side B and actually know I'm side A, but I'd be tempted to be side B some days. <laughs> you know, I, actually, scripture is really tough. And I think probably the side B people have it right. But I just, I just can't, for whatever reason, have mm. all of these experiences I haven't worked through. I'm side A. And so it's become more of a solidarity between side A and side B and some healthier conversation um, where there's more respect and trying to agree where we can agree and trying to go to each other's conferences and... <laughs> talk to each other more so I think that's really positive and I don't think that undermines the seriousness of the question either I think that creates a safer environment for people to question uh, and I think it's important that like if people feel in their conscience that they don't agree with being side b that they're able to question because if they're going to be side b in the end they need to have questioned and they need to have looked at what other people are saying and I think what this issue really or question requires is a ton load of theological patience. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it took me 10 years really to firm up what I think, and I'm still always learning. Uh, and there's some fundamental things that haven't shifted, like what scripture says. I don't think that really can be changed. But I do think, you know, that we're learning more and more about human sexuality, about gender. Uh, and I don't think that's going to threaten what we believe, you know, in the traditional or um, mm -hmm. Christian way. I think that's actually helping us be better at employing that. 
so yeah, I think that's, that's a really great development. I'd say I'm involved in my thesis more at looking at the term queer, which is often very difficult for Christians to get their head around, mm-hmm. but um, which is really about political resistance. And I think inside B community, there's a greater queering happening. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting because traditionally you wouldn't think of queer coming from a traditional Christian ethic. <laughs> Uh, but in a way it's starting to come actually to be single celibate gay is queerer than being queer (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so because you're you're resisting kind of normative views of marriage you're not having sex and kids you're like living this other life that's highly intersectional you know so what what does mainstream queerness do with that kind of very alternative queerness Uh, and that's kind of the question of my thesis is how has the church actually been queerer than the queer? And then what do you do with queer? Does it really fit with the doctrine of God? Or is it just a form of holiness that's caused to disrupt the political, social norms of society and keep witnessing to them that Jesus is raised and that there's this new eschatological reality that's coming? So I think that, that at least in my life, is a big development <laughs> the conversation. Yeah, great. We look forward to... Um reading that that argument of your thesis and I obviously will be made public uh, probably online as a thesis but I suspect as a book as well at some point yes hopefully a popular level one too popular level. <laughs> Just, yeah. great what what would you like to do after your thesis um once once you get out, out of the way and published etc yeah what's the next but, step so the next step is publishing it now <laughs> the next <laughs> always the the dreaded step uh (laughs) oxford university press i'm storming i'm storming your walls i'm coming for you no um uh (laughs) yeah i hope so the good thing about oxford is that you can be controversial and they like it um and i love that about being in oxford um, I think Pentecostals share that too. You know, we like to be a little bit edgy. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, I'm passionate about connecting the academy to the church and to the world and just being someone who can translate academic ideas in an apologetic evangelistic way that helps people believe in Jesus, but also to help equip the church to better witness to the gospel it's received and so I think those two things it's like more broadly what I want to do but I have been shortlisted for a role back in New Zealand um in you know I'm not from New Zealand but it's closer to Australia than here in the world in the UK for eight years and so yeah I may potentially move back I'm not quite sure yet um but yeah more books on the way writer speaker just keep preaching the gospel really Right. So David, um, if there's one thing that you think that all students at a theological college, let's say a Pentecostal theological college, because you've had a Pentecostal experience in, in your conversion story. So if there's one thing that all the students at a Pentecostal theological college should learn, what would it be in your opinion? I think what I would want them to learn is how important the experience of being at college is. For me, my one year at Bible college at my Pentecostal church was so vital um, to preparing me to look for the call God had. I think I would have easily been thrown off course uh, 
already in what I'm doing if I hadn't had that year of just close intimacy with God. Um, and so I think just wanting to encourage you to really be as intimate and to really make this time a time of like the green pasture with Jesus and just get filled up, get edified in the spirit. Um, I think that is just so vital before you try to do anything in the world to have that because you will need that when you get there <laughs> and there will be trials and tribulations and difficulties where you're going to need that kind of constitution that you've built that inner strength and I look at a lot of Pentecostal leaders and I think one of the things that I love about them is that they have this life of prayer that has built up their inner man in the spirit in a way I don't see in other denominations and I think that is the great gift among many other things of the Pentecostal movement and church is this interior life of Christ being built up and almost shining through more so I'd say that's what I would want to say alongside, you know, God's radical embrace of the world and inclusion of the world. Um, you know, I think in Pentecostal thinking, we can sometimes get quite dualistic. I think the world is terrible and we just need to be spiritual people that pray and everything will sort itself out. But I would want to say, no, like God radically includes and wants to embrace the world and wants us to be embodied. And yeah, so they're the two things I would say Pentecostal uh, Theological College and yeah thanks so much for having me it's really great to be able to speak to Pentecostals and not mm. Anglicans it's you know it's a experience. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about tongues freely you know yes. it's a prophetic session later you know <laughs> um, <laughs> David, really good and thanks for your honesty and all your answers really appreciate your your reflections and your wisdom and experience you know mm. well on, on the things of God, really. Um, now we have an opportunity. Now, indeed, you have an opportunity uh, for all our students and, and fellow colleagues uh, on the faculty to ask David any questions, maybe from what we've already discussed. Maybe something else has come to your mind that you'd want to pick David's brains on. So, um, so how we'll do this, uh, if you want to ask a question, you can either use the chat forum, you can write it if you prefer that, and then we'll read it out and we'll answer the question in that way. Or indeed, it's probably quicker if you just um, indicate um, either through the um, a reaction of, of raising hand or indeed just switch your mic uh, on and, um, and alert us in, in that way and ask, ask your question. I'll try to look at the screen also. If you want to raise your hand, I'll, I'll call your name out. But, um, but over to you, Paul. Yeah, thank you, David. It's been a fantastic... Um, half an hour or so with you, really enjoying it. I'm um, on the master's program at Regents and um, I'm looking at doing, I'm doing my thesis on um, how we can include or have a place for same-sex attracted people in Pentecostal church in particular. And um, something, when I read your book, something I thought was fantastic um, is that your encounter and tongue speech uh, being at the center really of your, your start and your journey. Um, Absolutely. And of course, how, how that correlates or whether that correlates over to Acts 10, Acts 11 and Cornelius's house and the Gentiles being included. Um, I just wondered if you could have any comments on that um, and areas, maybe key areas, 
of Pentecostal theology, which could act to include the marginalized LGBTQ, same-sex attracted, that kind of thing. Is that, is that okay? That's great. Yeah, I think um, what's so great about Tongue's speech is that it's, un, it's, um, it's like God's sneaky ninja inclusion sign. <laughs> it's like when God goes a bit wild and just decides, I'm going to include these people. <laughs> I'm going to kind of shock everyone, like, you know, do what I like because I'm God and I'm free. Uh, you know, I think it's just a sign of God's freedom that he can just justify who he wants by faith and that 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 we put these cases around god's holy embrace and god's you try to like box it in and to make it domestic and i think right from the old testament you kind of have this idea of the temple and it the temple then becoming almost like a constriction for god rather than a thing that he ever really wanted <laughs> uh and then the kind of jews attaching to the temple and i think you know, and then in Ezekiel, we see the moving temple in the sky and the fire and the like wheels within wheels and this kind of crazy apocalyptic ecstatic vision, you know, of the temple in the sky moving, almost God saying, I don't need your temple, like I can move the temple where I like. Um, and I think tongues is almost, especially I think in its instantiation as a gift, a bit like that, where God says, I can do church where I like. And uh, I'm an apocalyptic God and I can break in and touch people's lives wherever I so desire. And in fact, that's my nature. And I, and I love to do that. Uh, and you, you see that all the way through scripture where God's prophets, God's people don't quite get it, <laughs> um, yeah. but especially with Jesus um, and, and he then breaks in. And so I think for me, tongues was very important in teaching me that characteristic of God that God could just justify me, just come in and make a covenant sign that I was right with him mm. through tongue speech and that being really important sign and the prophetic too um, being very important pneumatic sign that God had made me right with him through Jesus. And we need manifest signs of that. You know, there are days we have hard days, we suffer, we don't feel close to God and, you know, praying in tongues can be so helpful to just draw near and to feel edified again, to feel God's presence with us and to be reminded that we are really righteous before him. <laughs> we are part of his covenant. We are, you know, part of this body of Christ. Uh, and I think it helps you overcome the world and to be holy. And so, yeah, for me, I think it really is about the marginal and, but not exclusively, I think tongues just can, it's just this free sign gift. It just is what it will be. And you can't predict it. And it does show up, you know, in indigenous revivals in profound ways. And, you know, for me as a gay person, it was a sign that God had justified me. And I remember like discovering that, you know, and Galatians reading that and reading about tongues in Acts and connecting all of that together and just having a kind of realization of how profound it was that I spoke in tongues in my sleep after I was saved as a sign that I really am part of God's people and that no one could take that away from me. <laughs> it was, it had been done, you know? So yeah, tongues for me, really important. Uh, you might've read James K. Smith's book of tongues as a form of resistance to the powers. Yeah. I think that's really good work. Um, and yeah, I'd love to read your thesis when it's Come on. done. <laughs> 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 okay. That'd be great. Bless. 
yeah, that's your work you. Paul. that's great yeah did you have any follow-up question or that you wanted to press quickly or? um i guess i guess for you uh celibate great uh, celibate gay christian um there there i have heard um anecdotal um people who are in active gay relationships who also speak in tongues. So um, it'd just be interesting to hear your thoughts on that, whether tongues um, is a sign of God's inclusion in, in God's family um, and whether maybe you draw the line there and say, actually, it doesn't, obviously I've, I speak in tongues, but I'm still a, I still sin. You know, mm -hmm. I still do things that don't please God. So maybe there's some level of boundary or something you have to draw there, some line. Yeah, that's great. I think that we can over read into tongues as well and maybe make it too much of a thing. Um, I know N.T. Wright and I have discussed this because he speaks in tongues, but he won't I think he's less keen because of his Anglican, like old hat <laughs> style to like speak in tongues in a worship service. But I, I've often said, you know, I think speaking in tongues in worship service is fine as long as it's not disturbing the um, proclamation of the gospel or the kind of order of the church service. As long as it's kind of done with the music, I don't really see the problem. And I don't think that's you know, going to be against Paul's uh, instructions in Corinthians. So it's just like interesting that there is a style question there. Um, but yeah, with tongues, it's... For me, um, I spoke in tongues when I was a side A Christian and I spoke in tongues when I was a side B Christian. And I, I don't think the gift of God uh, really changes. Like God gives his grace to whoever. And even people that have horrifically fallen and sinned, God doesn't take away his justification of the person. Like yeah. God retains yeah. that. And so I would say, you know, I don't really think being side A or side B affects the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy, but definitely perhaps the mature application of the gifts um, requires a deeper character formation and questioning of these issues. Mm. Um, but I, I think no one is saved or part of the church because they're side A or side B. These are not markers we would want to put in the way of salvation. And I think that's important. Uh, thing to add is I'm still saved at this idea um, they might not be living in a way that I see as an ultimate expression of that salvation so I, I draw this is a difficult one theologically and I'm still processing yeah. <laughs> it but I, I draw a distinction between kind of Lot and Abraham mm. you know there are a lot Christians and there are Abraham Christians and there are a lot of my side a friends I kind of see in that category of like they've gone back to the city because God's plan doesn't make sense <laughs> And they're going to live there and they're still righteous and they still know God, but they're not quite living the way that like Abraham is where they've gone. Okay. I'm leaving the city. I'm giving everything over. I'm going to stuff up and not be perfect, but I'm on the way, you know, to that other city. And I think that's ultimately what being a Christian really means, but some people are righteous and haven't really decided to walk on that path. And there is a great cost to that. The loss of Lot's wife, the loss of various things. So you would never want it recommend that um in the church so that's how i kind of think about it but right, lot was still righteous even though he wasn't exactly living in the call of god in the way that i think 
God called Abraham. Mm. So I think there is some distinction there mm. between yeah, Friday really and Sunday. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, David. Any anyone else? Any other questions? So we've got a question from Tabitha on the chat. If I just read that out, it says, should we approach non-Christian marriages and relationships in the same way, similar to gay relationships as it does not honor God? So this is really interesting theologically because the Orthodox Church would say yes and the Catholic Church would say no. Um, the, the Orthodox Church would say this is a special sacrament that the world can't participate in. Marriage is particularly Christian. And that helps them get away from the double standard of like, you know, oh, you know, Christian marriage, you know, they can kind of say, well, no, gay marriage, heterosexual marriage outside of Christian marriage, all of that is not right, actually. <laughs> the only way to be right with God is to either be celibate or to engage in a Christian marriage. The Catholic tradition has said, no, there are natural goods that everyone participates in um, but the true meaning of that natural good can only be found in Christ. So that natural good being marriage, um, the true, so, so non-Christians can participate in something that's of God, sacramental and natural good, but they can't find its completion without Jesus. They can't live it out truly how it was always intended without Jesus. I think I lean towards the Catholic perspective <laughs> um, that there is something innate in the created order marriage between a man and a woman corresponds to and so even if people who aren't christian are marrying in that way they're still in some way living in alignment with the created order but it's not the same it doesn't have the sacramental aspect of jesus in the church and the deeper reality of jesus leading that marriage and therefore can't quite you know um be the fullness of what was intended by god in, in, in creating the ordinance of marriage. So that's a very complicated answer to your very clear question. Um, <laughs> but I think ultimately it is distinct and yet like a gay marriage. Um, I wouldn't want to equate them completely, but there is some way in which they're like each other in that they don't fully live up to what God is trying to reveal in marriage. Um, but there's a way in which a heterosexual marriage still, I think, corresponds with God's created order in the beginning in a way that a gay marriage doesn't. Um, so they're li alike each other and yet different. Uh, yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. Well, Anyone else? Charles. Hi, Charles. We still can't hear you, Charles. Oh no, Charles, I can't hear you. Do you want to type your question? Can you hear me now? We can. Yes, we can. Oh, okay. <laughs> back in the room. Yeah, I'm back in the room. Um, yeah, David, really great sharing. And um, yesterday I watched um, a, a YouTube video of you yes. in Australia, um, The Pastor's Heart. Yes, yes. And um, you, you shared about your um early christian walk and i just wanted you to share a little bit about that because you mentioned in the first three years of your christian walk that you was uh, in a relationship and that god then the holy spirit then just said you felt in your spirit it was blocking your relationship with god um yes. can you expand on that and just 
talk us through that, how you come to that place where you realised, you know, after three years that you needed to change or you needed to, to stop? Yeah, fantastic question, Charles. So, so there was, for the first about three years of my walk with Christ, I definitely was side A. I was, you know, at the front of the church yelling at the church leaders that they needed to change their doctrine of marriage and that people were committing suicide and, you know, it's their fault and they need to stop, you know, all the things um, <laughs> that a gay activist does. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, for me, gay marriage became very important because if I, I agreed with the ultimate sexual ethic that I couldn't have sex before marriage. And so there was this kind of transition period where I was like, well, I still want to have sex. Like, I don't think being a Christian means we're against sex, you know, and I still had a little bit of that idea that to be a fully flourishing human being, I had to have sex uh, or somehow, you know, have romance. And if I didn't, how could I watch love actually and feel actualized? Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, we're surrounded by a popular culture that's constantly telling us that's what will make you whole and that's what will make you truly um, human again. When I, I just don't think that's actually true. It is a good, but it's not that good compared to God is the one who makes us truly human. And, you know, so I was going through all of that in my mind, trying to work it out. And I ended up having a boyfriend who is a kind of lapsed Catholic, so Christian enough to tick the box. Um, and we've probably all been there in our dating life. Oh, they're really attractive and like they have all these personal qualities I love and they're just Christian enough for me to justify this. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I suppose it was that kind of Christian relationship where I was a really strong Christian and, it was, you know, all I'd ever talk about was God. And, you know, he, he was like, oh, I'm just kind of a Catholic, Lebanese Catholic, you know. And God is not really the center of my life. It's just a tradition I carry. But I kind of believe he's there, but I'm angry with him. But I'm so it was very interesting because God used that relationship in an almost like pedagogical way to teach me about my sexuality. So God didn't say get out of the relationship straight away. He didn't like condemn it or anything. He, he just walked with me in it. And he kept quite silent actually through it all. And then there was a point at which one day, you know, I was in the car with my boyfriend and I wanted to kiss him. And I'd had this whole policy that like, if something got in the way of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life, it was out, like it can go, you know? And so I, I kind of was trying to work things out according to the presence of God, not just according to what all the advice I was getting from different Christian views. And I was like, I'm just going to follow the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so I remember like going to kiss him and the Holy Spirit just being like, no, no. I, I was like, what? Like, <laughs> like, I remember like being pulled back almost by the Holy Spirit. And, um, and weirdly, he didn't really want to kiss me either. So I think he was almost feeling that. Um, and then the Holy Spirit revealed to me that he had an issue with anger and there was something in his life that was blocking his relationship with God. And so God actually used it as an opportunity to minister to him. And I was able to confront him and say, you have this anger in your heart and it's like alienating you from God and you like need to deal with it. And at the end of our relationship, when we broke up, uh, he, I, he actually divulged to me what that was. It was quite a horrible thing that he'd been through and that, again, his sexuality wasn't actually the center of his issue with God. It was that suffering he was going through. And later 
in my life, I met up back up with him when I was angry with the Christian church. And I ended up, he's a very successful business person, millions of dollars, beautiful apartment in Sydney. We bought all of this sashimi and I was ready to kind of, I was done with being a celibate gay Christian. I just, I wanted to be romantic with someone. So I went back with him and then I went to kiss him. And then, you know, this was after I decided that I actually don't think a gay marriage is the way. I was still really struggling with it. And um, there we were and I tried to kiss him and he stopped me and he said, I know that you're a Christian, David, and this is the number one thing to you. And I love you and I won't allow you to do this. He like looked at me <laughs> with so much love in his eyes for me. And it was almost like Jesus was also staring at me through his eyes. And like by him not giving me the thing I thought I wanted, I actually received the love that the church hadn't given me and the ministry world hadn't given me. And so I think we just have to realize, you know, it's not in our, it's not in our strength. It's not in our perfection as people that we get to righteousness. It's often through being weak, but inviting God into that. And I'm not recommending going back to old relationships like I did pastorally, not a good idea, but we sometimes have to go through these experiences to realize that what we're really looking for is love, the love of God again, and the love of our brothers and sisters. And sometimes you learn that in the world and people in the world who aren't living the Christian way actually give that to you. So it kind of was a mirror, I suppose. At one point I was convicted about, you know, through the Holy Spirit that that wasn't the way of God. And yet I failed in that and, you know, wanted the opposite. And there he was to love me. And so it was just a really interesting way of God teaching me um, a deeper asceticism uh, of what I was really looking for in, in that second episode with him was, was intimacy. And it was by him denying me the thing I thought I wanted that I received the love. Uh, Can I quickly ask you something else, David? Yeah. Yeah, so just, just touching on that, um, um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing the love that your, your, your ex showed you because normally you would think that maybe they would um, react in a negative light now that you're moving in a different path or that you're on a different path. So um, there's something else that you said in that meeting that I've got in that thing that I saw and it really stuck with me and I wrote it down. And you said you can't be a full-blown Christian witness in a modern-day society and not be attacked or persecuted. Really struck me. And I just thought, looking at you from where you were being a pro-gray activist to where you are now, have you received backlash from within that community or whatever? And how do you deal with that? How have you dealt with that, number one? And secondly, for us um, as, as, as Christians, there's so much... Um, like mental health issues, suicide issues in the LGBT community. How can we as Christians reach out into that in those communities and be better witnesses for Jesus? The two yeah. questions there, David. Great, Charles, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'd say to the first one, it's true that I think you do always get persecuted if you're a Christian. Um, I think that's part, and Jesus says, you know, I will give you your hundred these things when you give them up for me plus persecutions does he have to add that no <laughs> could it just be the hundredfold uh yeah Simo was part of the panel um no, <laughs> no, no. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> you can't be that good. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think that my the thing I've struggled with the most, to be honest, has been other Christians, not really the world or the gay community. Um, of course, I think the gay community probably says all sorts of things behind my back that are not very nice. And I'm happy not to hear them. Um, <laughs> but I understand that because I think if I was, you know, back when I wasn't a Christian, that's, that would have been my response. But I think the other thing I find fascinating is that many people that are like at the head of the gay rights movement that I've encountered have said, I support your right to be a celibate gay Christian. Like, I want that right to exist. Uh, and I want you to be able to do whatever you want with your sexuality, as long as I'm free to live differently. Like, there's no problem here. And I think that's a really amazing thing I've, I've received from people at the height of the gay community. People who are kind of not leaders or just like in their own emotional difficulties with it are often quite nasty. But the like leaders can often be really amazing in how they respond to me. Uh, and there's been some really great Christian leaders who are similar. And then there's been a whole bunch of other stuff that's just absolutely crazy that you think, I'm here living the traditional biblical ethic and I'm being persecuted like really hard, hardcore by the Christians that are supposed to be supporting me. <laughs> um, and they're making my life really difficult. And it's just such a difficult thing to have grace for, you know, it's really hard because I, I just think, give me a break, you know. Um, but people are on a learning journey and Part of that learning journey sometimes is virulently reacting to something that maybe is inviting you deeper into the truth and you know not coping with it uh and i think there is a real issue of homophobia uh so in the christian community still um and just like there is with racism i wouldn't want to equate them they're different but there is an overlap there too and yeah so i think we have to repent of the sin of homophobia the other thing I find really hard is kind of what I call like progressive Christian snobbery. So I'll be around a lot of progressive Christians and they're like, oh, he's that like, you know, basically castrating himself Christian that is a self-hating homophobe and you know, these kinds of terms. And you just think this is a reverse form of homophobia. So, you know, there's a real mixed bag and there's some really negative responses. But I think the only way you change anything is by trusting Christ and once you found the truth to really stand in it and be brave and God always shows up in that um, but I do think the failure of the evangelical world to get behind people like me well it's not always the case I mean this bible college you know this theological college and many other places but the general atmosphere especially in the U.S. has been negative so yeah to answer the first question the second question I can't actually remember because I've been thinking through the first one. Uh, do you yeah, want to? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's obviously a lot of mental health issues and high rates of suicide in the LGBT community. So how can we as Christians, and we've got Jesus, we've got the solution. How can we reach that gap and get in there and share the gospel with them and, and help them in this area? So I think um, mental health is a very complex thing and there are many different mental health difficulties i do think the way that mental health overlaps with being lgbtqi plus can be particularly intense and this is why i often 
people encounter side A people are just, it's just too much to me to even deal with being side B. I'm just exhausted. Like, I just want a relationship. I just need that, you know, and it's difficult pastorally to respond to that because yeah, like that, that, I mean, Jesus still calls us, but sometimes people are just in that place where they're dealing with so many things um, that are tough and adding being gay on top of that or trans or whatever is a lot. And so I think we need to really respond with incredible grace, um, patience, all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that eventually through that, we can invite people um, deeper with the questions that they're being confronted with and that God in their faith journey is asking them to process and actually build a deeper faith. So I think a lot of these things like mental illness, um, disability, sexuality questions they're not the same but there's a similar process of depth and deepening as a disciple that you have to go through to stay in Christ and that's a process where our faith becomes like gold to God and becomes precious and if we don't go through these things then our faith is easy it doesn't have value and it you know it's also in scripture about I will not offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing you know and our lives are meant to cost us something and actually then being gay becomes a gift, being, having a disability becomes a gift. You know, all these things become acts of worship. And I think that's the ultimate way in Christian ethics, we wanna transform these things into spaces of worship and trust with God. Um, and that that then glorifies God and builds up the church and means other people will meet Jesus. So I think often you see in the church, the anointing and the presence of God being poured out I think that's because there are people in the back doors of leadership going through incredibly difficult things and trusting God. And so God responds by pouring out the Holy Spirit. There's always a cruciform side of the glory um, that comes in the church. And we need to understand that dynamic better and plummet more profoundly um, for pastoring people in the church too. So yeah, that's, I'll, I'll finish there. Any other how much more time do we have, Simo? We'll just go for another another five minutes. I think, David, you've done very well. We will, don't want to grill you for too long. <laughs> David, can I just follow up from that? Um, yeah. You know, from Charles's question. This was a question I actually had um, already before, but Charles has, I think, brought it out very well. Um, I suppose for, for people who are not same-sex attracted or who wouldn't identify themselves as gay, so I guess, you know, heterosexual Christians, to what extent do you think they have a right to contribute to the discussion or to what extent should they just support their gay brothers and sisters um, out there? Uh, I suppose, you know, often in a lot of contextual theology and stuff, often those people who don't come from a particular experience, their voice is often seen as slightly irrelevant. What, would, what, would your, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what advice would you give for, I suppose, heterosexual Christians who may want to contribute but are not sure whether they should or whether they can and how should they do it if they do so um i think that that's such a good question so it's quite a difficult one because in a way culture can be quite dismissive to someone who's not gay or trans or something intersex doing scholarly work on those questions but i suppose there's a value um i think it's about your posture actually it's not really about whether you're gay or straight or whatever in doing that work. I think it's about learning a certain posture towards the questions that then kind of not qualifies you, but shows that you get it <laughs> kind of tacit knowledge about the field. Um, and 
I think if you can develop that through, you know, relationships with people who are going through those things, like I still don't understand mental health that well. And I probably wouldn't write on it until I was able to have some talks with people who really go through depression and like you know, hear a bit more about the phenomenology of it and the, you know, the experience of it. And then once I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to understand this more deeply, I might write an article about it. And maybe I would co-author it with someone who has gone through mental illness. Uh, today, when I was teaching about transgender, I'm not transgender. So I, I decided to, um, you know, put up a video of a whole bunch of transgender people in the US responding to questions, strongly agree, disagree, you know, um, to give people a sense of what transgender people go through, what their responses are to, to, to their gender dysphoria. Um, and that, I have to do that first before I then comment on it theologically. So I think as long as you do that and you have that posture, I don't really think there's anything wrong with you doing it that as, as, a, as a person that's like cisgender straight. Um, I think we need more, more of that. And I think in biblical scholarship, it's kind of the other way around. There's so many people who are straight white males who have written the biblical scholarship on this. Um, but also the biblical scholarship that's coming in from the gay community isn't, well, at least I haven't seen very good biblical scholarship. It's been like very overrun by queer theory and queer theology. And it's not allowed to just be biblical scholarship that's done from a vantage point. So I think, yeah, there's the different disciplines have different problems within them. Um, you know, you go to sociology and it's all just way too, it depends on the topic area really, I think with this, um, but yeah, I think we need to do some work in the academy to change that and to have scholars that aren't necessarily gay. Marilyn McCord Adams is an interesting person to look at. Who She was straight, but she really identified with the suffering of gay people. I don't agree with her conclusions uh, theologically, like she's a universalist and, you know, whatever. I don't agree with universalism, but she definitely had an amazing process that I'm looking at emulating in the way that I do work theologically that maybe would be of interest to you. Uh, yeah. Well, so. Thank you. I think we may still have room for one more question. Um, who would like to ask the, the last one? There's always a lot of pressure on the last person asking <laughs> because the last question is to be particularly good. <laughs> Can I? Okay, go on, Peter. I'm allowed to. You, you do it. I, I'm just interested, David, <laughs> with everything you've been saying. Yes. And it's a little verse in Romans that when I was involved as an early Christian with a lot of people who were gay coming out of theatre, in those days they were just gay and lesbian, there wasn't LBGD, everything else. Um, and it's where God says, Paul says that God has consigned everyone to disobedience that he yes. may show mercy to them. Mm. And um, I just just wanted you to say a few things about that. Yes, I think, um, I mean, this is one of the greatest, I think this is very much the Pauline logic of the gospel. Like when we think about suffering or, you know, you know it kind of reflects what we're talking in some other lectures today about that, you know, when the blind man is there and, they ask Jesus, why is he blind? And they all want him to come up with confirming their weird theories of like, you know, it's his family sin or, you know, a demon or whatever it might be. And not that those things might not contribute, might not have some contributive element to various 
you know things we can go through but ultimate the ultimate reason that he's blind isn't because of any of those things it's that so that the glory of god can be revealed and i think there's a way that god has chosen to to redeem the fall to actually make the felix culpa argument you know that he he allowed the fall so that a greater glory could be possible um and i think that is really what being gay and lesbian is about as a christian i think it's about allowing that greater glory in and that greater glory being worked out in your life that looks like something that's so much worse to be gay and lesbian you can't just proceed with a marriage on the surface you think oh gosh this is terrible how sad i'll never be able to you know have romantic love uh and then god works in that situation to allow a mixed orientation marriage or to bless someone celibacy and transforms that into a glorious thing um you know he heals the blind man you know he <laughs> does these various miracles and he doesn't deal with each situation in the exact same carbon copy way it's always quite unique he rubs you know on one miracle he puts mud on the eyes <laughs> there's this whole other dynamic and it's all just so much more jewish than it is greek uh <laughs> so uh you know i'll just leave it with the jewish thing and uh, let it be a bit mysterious but i think like you know at the end of the day it's um i just think it's we we need to get excited at the glory that god is going to reveal when we meet gay people and lgbtqi plus people all people but particularly when we're confronted with that difficulty to get excited about the glory of god that's going to come and i actually when i meet gay people now i look at them as almost i get excited you know i don't think oh gosh it's going to be so hard for them oh, so terrible oh gosh they're going to have to ask all these questions and it's going to be so you know it, no god's glory is going to be revealed this is amazing you know oh gosh let's get this to happen you know i i'm excited to facilitate this you know i think if that could be the reaction of the church we in a much better place and to have these spaces of grace that we've talked about where people can work things out and fail a bit and fall a bit but be in the direction of repentance you know and ultimately try to follow jesus i think that's all the church is really about it it's a direction if people are following that way then that's a good thing and we just need to keep encouraging them towards that so yeah that's how i like to think about about you know uh lgbtqia plus stuff and where we're at at the moment in the church because uh, there's just so much negativity around you can kind of get exhausted by it all um but to try to really plug into god and what his you know his glorious plan to redeem these things um that's where we just have to keep abiding um and god will do it he's done it in my life and he's going to do it in so many other people's lives especially in pentecostal churches <laughs> so yeah david, thank you thank you thank you Hugo. david thank you so much in a moment i'm going to ask jonathan to to pray for you and um you know just to kind of you blessed us we want to bless you if we were in in the same room in a good pentecostal fashion we'd lay hands on you <laughs> we're not quite able to do that today in the physical way but we would want to we'd want to pray for you in a moment but again thank you so much for your time for this morning with with the students you know in in the christian ethics module and now just taking the time and being really honest with us and and just offering a wealth of wisdom and 
and helpful advice. So thank you. We, we appreciate you. you. Thank you for that. Brother JB, over to you. All right, that's right. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are a God who cares for each one of us individually, Lord. Uh, we thank you that you don't look at people and see categories, but you look at people and see each one that you've made in your image, Lord. And um, Lord, I pray just even through the discussion we've had today that uh, you'd help us always to remember that, Lord. You'd help us to see people the way that you see them, Lord. Uh, and not to see people um, as simply uh, groups or categories, but to see people as people, Lord. Um, and, uh, and Lord, uh, Lord, just even as David's been talking to us about that, uh, how your glory is uh, going to be revealed in people's lives. Help us to have that perspective. Um, uh, Lord, uh, Lord, looking for... Um, looking to see where you're going to work, uh, looking with expectation of your work in people's lives, looking with that confidence in the power of the gospel, um, in the power of the blood of Jesus. Uh, and Lord, we thank you just even for this conversation we've had today, Lord, um, and for the time David spent with, uh, with us this afternoon and in the ethics classes today too, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the time he's given us. We pray your blessing on him, Lord. Um, uh, on the work that he's doing at the minute um, and on his uh, his plans for the future as well, Lord, that you would guide him, Lord, into the ways that you're calling him to serve you, give him wisdom as he makes those decisions, Lord, that you'd give him wisdom as he speaks in various places, Lord, as, as those doors have opened up to him in different places that you just, Lord, help him to speak in a way where your love um, and, and your truth um, shine through in everything that he does and that you would be glorified not only in his life but through um through how he represents you lord that uh, that he would see that glory of god being revealed in other people's lives as well as he's been talking about um lord uh just want to pray as well for people as uh, some people aren't with us this afternoon because they're on their way traveling home lord so um uh, look after them keep them safe as they travel um and uh, lord as uh, as as we go from these devotions today, whether we're in Mulvard or, uh, or wherever else we are, Lord, that we'd go knowing your goodness. We'd go knowing your presence with us. We'd go, Lord, built up um, in, Lord, that expectation of what you can do in this world, not with a negative view of the world around us, Lord, but with that, with that wonder and expectation uh, of what you can do by your gospel power in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen.